Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Honestly, have no idea where to go with that. But there's radioactive seagulls. Yeah, it has to be mentioned. It has to be mentioned. <laughs> the thought of my voice being in the head of someone who doesn't think walking down the street with an eagle is cool. No. Even if it's not all that, that head is so terrifying. Like a nerd with a katana blade. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> every time, every season, we go to start a Roddy segment and he starts grinning. <laughs> so, I'm going to start talking about something completely different. Okay. This isn't even nature related. Oh, okay. The first bit of this. Okay. Okay. What do you know about Sellafield? Sellafield? Yes. I've never heard of it. What's Sellafield? Sellafield was built in 1956. It is Europe's biggest nuclear site on the coast of Cumbria. Oh. Sellafield was built in 1956. It is Europe's biggest nuclear site. It is 650 acres. It was operational from 1956 to 2003. And the decommissioning of the facilities there, since it's shutting down, is set to be complete by 2120 at a cost of 121 billion pounds. Material housed at Sellafield will remain radioactive for 100,000 years. It was the site of one of the world's worst nuclear disasters in 1957, which on a quicker side, it opened in 56. (laughs) (laughs) And it was buggered a year later. (laughs) This is in Cumbria. It's on the coast in Cumbria. In the UK. It is one of the most radioactive. It's like almost kind of Chernobyl Fukushima level stuff. I had no idea. In Cumbria in the UK. It basically acted for the later part of its life as it was built and first began as a nuclear power plant mm. and was generating power mm-hmm. and then slightly transitioned and this isn't was the slight transition after it exploded a year later (laughs) was it became a nuclear waste processing plant okay so they're taking the waste from other plants yeah and just dealing with it yep basically it comprises more than a thousand buildings and people are still working there on the decommissioning Thirteen thousand people work there it processes all the UK nuclear waste from 15 operational reactors, as well as nuclear waste from Europe and Japan. And overall, 50,000 tonnes of fuel has been reprocessed there. It is currently home to 140 tonnes of plutonium. You need between 5 and 10 kilograms of yeah. plutonium to make a nuclear bomb. What? Oh my God. As part of processing it, The waste is housed. It's a massive nuclear site. Yeah. And the whole place is radioactive. Yeah. Okay. There are some buildings at Sellafield that are so radioactive, no human will ever be able to enter them ever. Whoa. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, As part of decommissioning, Mm. you basically have to break the place down piece by piece by piece and take the radioactive material like the buildings, the paper cups left behind, everything, Mm. and process that. 
And nuclear waste management is somewhere between incredibly complicated and desperately simple, okay? It's incredibly complicated and expensive managing it and handling it and dangerous and everything. But when it actually comes out the end to kind of processing and dealing with it, yeah. it's a case of putting it in a really, really big concrete box right. and just sealing it up, okay? okay. <laughs> so as part of the decommissioning, uh, waste is housed in giant 50-ton concrete boxes the only hint of what each box specifically contains because everything here is so radioactive and dangerous is a short serial number stamped on one side that can only be decoded using a formula held at three separate locations and printed on vellum oh my god okay <laughs> which which to me suggests the existence of nuclear monks yeah. <laughs> now the storage situation is insane Okay, and there's a lot here, and it's very complicated. But basically, part of why Sellafield became so overwhelmed with it, yeah. just to paint a picture, is during the miners' strike, right, and the country going down to a three-day week because mm. the miners' strike slowed down production of electricity generated from coal power power plants, coal fire power plants. That then meant that the government basically had the nuclear reactors ramp up their production to meet the yeah. which then meant that Sellafield had an insane amount of waste going its way right which then meant that it became overwhelmed okay. which then so when, to, but remember it was still operational till 2003 yeah and look, when you say that the buildings are full of like you know that are so radioactive people can't go in them yeah were they overwhelmed so they were just like you know deliveries of nuclear waste were just getting delivered to Sellafield's door and they were just like yeah we'll just stick it in there for a bit until we deal with it like why why are so buildings so if they're supposed to be sealing in concrete boxes how have they got to a stage where the buildings are so powerfully toxic so i mean nuclear power plants in general just have a background level have a of background radiation. level of radiation mm. and i'm going to be completely honest i've done a level of research to set this up <laughs> okay i do not know the intricacies of nuclear physics we're not a nuclear <laughs> physics podcast anyway <laughs> exactly. so i don't blame you but I did do some reading on the next bit. And basically, mm. nuclear power plants use water to cool spent fuel. Mm -hmm. So the fission takes place in the plutonium and the uranium, and then they put that in water, and it heats up, and that turns it into steam, and that turns a turbine, which in turn generates electricity. But once it's used, it's still very hot. But if you stick it in deep water, the water shields you from the radiation, and it can be there to just cool down. Mm -hmm. But that cooling down takes a very, very long time. Okay. So, nuclear power plants have these pools of water that we use to house the spent fuel. These can be 12 meters deep wow. to shield off the radiation from yeah. it. And Sellafield has two such ponds like this that are 60 years old. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, there was this ramping up in production, which then led to a ramping up of nuclear waste that needed processing in the country. One of these ponds is called the first generation Magnox storage pond. Catchy. Magnox are apparently the group who make the nuclear reactors or something. Okay. So it's the Magnox storage pond. And waste was still being dumped in the first generation Magnox storage pond as recently as 1992. Okay. And these ponds were built as short-term storage solutions in the 50s. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Before being completely abandoned in the 70s, oh, but with waste still being dumped in them, up until 1992. Jeez. Okay? Yeah. As of 2014, 
there was an estimated 1,200 cubic meters of radioactive sludge in the pond. Christ. Okay. And this is just the bottom of a deep pool. The bottom of a 12-meter deep pool. Yeah. yeah. Removal of sludge from the pond started in 2018. And in a government report in 21, they had said that over 100 meters of sludge had been removed. Okay. But there's 1,200 cubic meters there. Oh, my word. If the pond were to drain or dry out unexpectedly, <laughs> the spent fuel and sludge would be exposed to the air, which would in turn, it could potentially spontaneously ignite. <laughs> what? <laughs> and spreading intense radiation over a wide area. Superb. Selfie and I almost don't know. I mean, this is out there, but it's like Sellafield's not great. Yeah, <laughs> and there are pictures of these ponds, and they're rusty, and the concrete. Are they just like open air? Open air ponds built in the fifties that you just stuck the nuclear waste at the bottom of until it had cooled down. Like the sludge to transport it around the slight. There's a system of canals hmm. because you cannot put the sludge in the air. You just can't. It will just ah. burst into flames, and then you've <laughs> then you then you've got like a Chernobyl thing going on, right? You're just fucked. God. Okay, <laughs> handling this stuff is insanely yeah. complex. At the same time, the end result seems to be put it in a big box, seal it up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine mm. who grew up in Cumbria mm. and said that, like, all the school trips would be to Sellafield no and way. stuff. Yeah. And he described the situation as, you'd think if you could split the atom, you wouldn't do something so fucking stupid as drop the waste in a hole and not worry about it. That seems incongruous with the level of technology involved in splitting an atom. I got a fair point. Okay. So, we have a huge nuclear site, yep. home to one of the world's worst nuclear disasters, yep. which incidentally was a five on... A five out of seven scale on the incident of nuclear disasters. I do not know why Ooh. the nuclear disaster scale would go to seven, other than if you've been around enough nuclear disasters, you got seven fingers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is, is this the event that happened in 1957? Or are we just saying that the disaster was what they've done? 57, there was a event. I didn't go into that too much, yeah. but it's just generally the overwhelming amount of radioactive waste, which ended up there, yeah. the when you read into it there seems all kind of the current system of decommissioning it and handling it isn't looking to pursue anyone to prosecute because it just says the historic sequence events is so just yeah, messy yeah. it's just led to this situation that we've got this huge nuclear site with buildings that are so some of the buildings you work a 10-hour shift to clean them mm. okay the protective equipment takes so long to put on that in that 10-hour shift you only then get to go in the building and can safely be exposed to the stuff in the building for 90 minutes oh so God. you've got like five hours either side just putting on the protective gear to go into 90 minutes to right deep clean stuff so up in cumbria near the coast this huge site with these outdoor ponds mm. which at the bottom of them is this just thousands of cubic meters of toxic nuclear sludge yeah right what might a massive open body of water near the coast attract uh near the coast seals sellafield has a radioactive seagull problem <laughs> 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 
<laughs> of course it does. <laughs> well, that's right. When 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 you were talking about these ponds, I assumed that they must have been under some sort of housing or something because what's to stop them being full of radioactive nukes and all sorts of stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so begins our journey. <laughs> Super. I'm strapped in. Heat from the waste yeah. keeps the ponds warm. So uh, in the winter, it attracts seagulls, pigeons, everything oh my God. to the ponds. It's like a radioactive spa. It basically is a <laughs> nuclear spa. A nuclear jacuzzi. To the point where, and this is like hush hush kind of stuff yeah. i mean trying to find pictures of this but there was like leaked pictures from a worker which showed seagulls just it's, it's swimming around on the pond yeah oh my word so the water would then imbue the gulls with a level of background radiation which then meant that if they took off and flew about the place yeah. it would spread the radiation over the landscape yeah Details on this situation are remarkably hard to find, so much so that some of the details in this little presentation, Jack, come to us from Yachting Monthly, because I had to dig. <laughs> no, but also, because why does Yachting Monthly have the scoop on, like, the biggest hush-hush nuclear, <laughs> nuclear event that's happened in the UK? Suddenly, Yachting... So .com has got the inside scoop <laughs> because it was letting yacht owners know in case seagulls near <laughs> Sellafield landed on your yacht <laughs> of course so uh, the site has since uh, changed hands into public ownership because it was decided that no, <laughs> no private company could be trusted to you know right, yeah. handle this situation but when the site was still under private ownership they employed a team of sharpshooters right. to kill the seagulls. <laughs> yeah. So there was an active time in the UK where you could be a nuclear seagull assassin. <laughs> oh my God. Just put a net over it, guys. <laughs> right. But then you can't just leave the nuclear seagulls knocking about the place once oh, you've shot then you'll them. you get nuclear hawks. Well, you get nuclear hawks, <laughs> nuclear, nuclear rats, right? So they then have to be processed and handled as if they were nuclear waste. Okay. However, because they are also biological waste, mm. they apparently fall into some other category, which means that at Sellafield, there is an industrial freezer... <laughs> Full of radioactive seagulls. Within which no one knows exactly how many radioactive seagulls are in there, but it's estimated of over 350. Oh, my word. Radioactive seagulls are housed in an industrial freezer at Europe's biggest nuclear site oh my in Cumbria God. with just some nuclear seagulls that no one's too sure what to do with. Why don't they just, uh, yeah, because it's worked so well for them before, dispose of the nuclear seagulls in the big ponds at the bottom of the sludge? <laughs> Now, other things they do is egg pricking, nest disturbance, yeah. anything they can to try and keep wildlife away yeah. from these ponds. Mm. It seems like that nuclear seagull assassin situation, that program ran for about 10 years. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then we've retired it, and now it's a bit more, uh, they're doing it with nest disturbance. Proactive. Rest, but it is monstrous and if you want to learn more about the Sellafield situation do go out and read I mean there get yourself is, on yachting monthly yeah clearly but so that's what's happening in Cumbria I had no idea Sellafield even existed yeah. let alone the fact there were nuclear seagulls it's flying around the place it's huge it's huge there's also reports of swallows near Sellafield 
uh, have radioactive droppings. Wow. Yeah. Shit. Literally. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, have no idea where to go with that. Yeah. But there's radioactive seagulls. Yeah. I, it has to be mentioned. It has to be mentioned. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that is example A. Yeah. But it's not the only place where this kind of thing happens. Mm. We're now going to go to Butte in Montana. Mm. Not I love. Okay, I thought yeah. we were I love Butte. No, this is Butte in Montana. We're going to Berkeley Pit. Okay. And Berkeley is the site of a former copper mine, mm-hmm. which has since been flooded with toxic groundwater. Right, okay. <laughs> you may perhaps... <laughs> Detect a theme. Yeah. Be able to piece together uh, the direction this conversation could be taking. The company which ran the mine, mm. again, the private company which yeah. ran the mine, uh, shut it down in 1982, and this then saw water. So it was an open cast mine. So imagine those pictures you've seen where they've just dug a massive hole in the place and there used to be all these tunnels and machinery. Shut it down. In the time since, the water table has crept back in. It's flooded. But in the water coming back up through the rocks, it has picked up all levels of chemicals and basically... Um, transformed is the wrong word i cannot think of the chemical word i'm looking for here Mm. but converted to sulfuric acid and the sulfuric acid has then leached heavy metals out of the bedrock oh my god which now means that there is a massive it's over a mile wide yeah the lake yep full of the most toxic water these are all like superhero origin stories for various animals <laughs> <laughs> like you know the seagulls just became you know could turn green and really strong and whatever poor unfortunate <laughs> creature is about to fall into this lake <laughs> right so the mine mm. also just so happens to be on two major migratory paths oh. for both spring and autumn migration going from north to south america so a lot of birds stop yeah. at this mine yeah. en route <laughs> for respite. Yeah. This topic may be an emotional situation for you, but you're <laughs> going to have to stick with me. Yeah. This next bit is where we go off the deep end. Okay. Whilst at Sellafield, mm. the water that they land on is in a bad situation, but it has been built on the basis that that level of water shields the bulk of the radiation. Mm. So, the, so it's only like a background level by the time a, the gulls sit on the top. By the time the gulls sit on the top and all the rest, it's still, you know, obviously not great. It, I mean, any radiation is, any nuclear radiation yeah. is, is, you know, not great. Sure, we can all, yeah, debate that. <laughs> <laughs> any bird that lands on the lake at Butte, the water is so toxic oh my God. that it will cook them from the inside out in a matter of hours. Holy shit. What? Yeah. Christ almighty. Yeah. So, whereas Sellafield was a case of needing to destroy and contain the seagulls that may land, the efforts here are around stopping birds landing on the lake. Right. Which, I mean, if anything, is the nicer approach. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know, Sellafield, take a note out of their book. Yeah. So, for 30 years, the solution here was just there was a guy on the edge of the lake guys on the edge of the lake with rifles and whenever a bird would land on the lake they would shoot near the bird mm. to just scare it away okay. they had no interest in actually shooting the bird it was yeah. just get it off just the lake scare it off the but in 2016 mm. this changed 
the mood changed. Ooh, interesting. Because, like I said, the pit is on the migration route for snow geese. Okay. Which one... Well, in 2016, the mood changed. The pit is on the migration route for snow geese, and one night in November, as they were migrating, they hit a storm while passing by, and all 60,000 birds on migration... Wow. Descended on the lake as their rest stop to escape the storm. Yeah. And 3,000 birds died in a matter of days. After this event, the company realized they needed to up their effort. The bird scare got fired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just like, just like dozed off for half an hour, woke up, and there were suddenly 60,000 snow geese <laughs> on the patch of water we should have been watching. And it is literally like when you look at pictures of this, it's this huge crater with just a tiny little cabin on the edge which is called the bird hut right right but this situation was too much mm-hmm. okay and different to sellerfield again they're both both these stories are completely fucked right <laughs> but in this instance it moved so that the company overseeing it decided to invest millions in bird protection okay so Berkeley Pit now has some of the most high-tech bird disturbance stuff going on. (laughs) Similar, in a sense, to the nuclear waste situation, it is both high-tech and incredibly (laughs) low-tech. It is make a lot of noise. (laughs) But they employ a number of professional bird... Noises. Scarers. Okay. They have a series of random wailing alarms surrounding the lake that make different types of noise at different times of the day so that nothing can get habituated. They have propane cannons, which are like the things that fire t-shirts at concerts, (laughs) that fire over the lake randomly. Twice, when there have been quote unquote big events of birds they have had full firework displays (laughs) to deter anything from landing over the lake. That's such an excuse. Yep. Like the boss is like hang on, what in the budget there's like an entire fireworks display and they're like yeah massive bird bird event <laughs> what those about, geese are coming back what about all the barbecue yeah. stuff as well they have a series of remote control water boat drones that whiz around the lake wow. disturbing things okay. they have aerial drones yeah. that harass and disturb things uh, they still have the guys with the rifles mm-hmm. <laughs> He said his favourite piece of kit, just to let you know, was his $5,000 Swarovski spotting scope. Oh. Hello, Swarovski. (laughs) Yeah. We'll add our email in the description. Every hour, they are counting and harassing the birds on the lake. Right. One of the big things also that changed after 2016 was they realised they needed to be much more scientific with it because they previously were just... (laughs) Do they previously been having firework displays? Well, no, because they have realized that the different species of birds on the lake react to different types of harassment. Okay. Some species are on the lake overnight, so they have the, like, boats do night patrols automatically. Some respond to this, some respond to that. Okay. Some you have to shoot near them to get them off the water to then chase them with another thing to... Right, right. right? There's a lot. There's a multi-million yeah. dollar effort. To yeah. keep birds off a lake. Yeah. It's nice harassment. It is, it is. Um, they've discovered over 50 species use the lake and each need their own deterrent. Mm. Now, down the road from Butte... <laughs> Here we go. There's another lake. <laughs> That's just perpetually on fire. <laughs> right. So, we've got Butte Lake. That's happening. Uh-huh. But before it flooded, when it was a mine... In 1908, the mine 
well, before it flooded permanently, the mine flooded before okay. in 1908. And this spilled toxic waste into all the nearby town and waterways. It therefore made all these other it habitat chaos, right? Okay. One yeah, night, yeah. overflowed, massive destruction, okay? They therefore realized they needed something which could, in effect, buffer overspills and all the rest. So they dug and created a series of other big lakes mm -hmm. to buffer from any future spill and soak up heavy metals. Okay. And these lakes have adjoining pumps which pump, uh, they said it was lime into them. They also, from what I saw, have what look like big reed beds which are also quite good at pulling heavy metals out of the water right. and all the rest. Now these lakes exist as buffers so that were anything to go tits up again, mm -hmm. there's a safety. It wouldn't get into the waterways and things like that. Now, the buffers were built before it flooded in 1982 to become this sulfuric acid pit of hell. Right. But the buffers are there. Yeah. Okay. And because they are there and because they are managed to have clean water, they've now become wildlife havens where it actually is safe. Okay. For the wildlife to oh, nice. exist there. And so there are teams that monitor these lakes and radio to the Butte Lake to let them know, hey, you might get a grebe tonight. Get the grebe <laughs> alarm ready. Right, yeah. You know, you might have... There are coots heading west, yeah. you know. Get out the Catherine wheels. Exactly. <laughs> ready the Roman candles. <laughs> the whooper swans cometh. It goes to show that still, like, the pumps aren't idle. They're still having to pump the water to keep it clear. Mm. So after one event in 1908, it's led to a 100-year-plus cleanup effort in wow. still managing and monitoring these lakes. Yeah. Thoughts? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I'm still pretty blown away by the whole Sellafield thing. Oh, yeah. Like, I just never, never had any idea that was in the UK or that there were... You hear about the salt lakes you know the natural salt lakes that things like flamingos are adapted to yeah. and can walk through these like really acidic salt lakes and be fine maybe just need a load of flamingos to turn up on these lakes and it'd be fine if we fill uh cellar filled with flamingos yeah you think? Uh, on the maybe not the nuclear stuff i'm not sure they're radioactive but maybe, maybe over in butte maybe a population of flamingos could set itself up quite who knows what color they'd go <laughs> filtering <laughs> like, like the technicolor flamingo flock of butte <laughs> so there we go maybe we'll circle back to that kind of thing who knows in a thousand years we'll check in on Sellafield see if there's still nuclear seagulls flapping about <laughs> how Barrow. many nuclear geese yeah it's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death now today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Mac Lee Chamberlain and it is the Goliath Heron. Now, let's get to know our foe. Hailing from sub-Saharan Africa, South and Southeast Asia, this is the world's biggest heron, standing up to a metre and a half tall with a wingspan that can reach two metres wide. The Goliath Heron is about a third bigger than the Grey Heron that you'll be familiar with, just to give you a bit of a size perspective there. It's found in swamps, lakes, mangroves, wetlands, and the Goliath heron is particularly aquatic, even by heron standards. It rarely strays too far from water. They don't like human disturbance and prefer to stay in areas of more pristine wetland, unlike grey herons, which, if you go to Amsterdam, will just come and literally steal your chips out your hand if you sat there, just like gulls will. 
Being so tall, the Goliath heron can fish in deeper water than other herons, with the prey that it eats consisting almost entirely of fish, but it will eat lizards, small mammals, other things that it may come across. And their main weapon is, of course, that beak. It can be 20 centimetres long, between 18 and 20 centimetres, a dagger-like beak that they use to stab fish. And like many herons that hunt big fish, they slightly open their beak so that they can stab them with both mandibles, which gives them more purchase on the fish if they've got two entry points going into the fish. Then they bring it out and they swallow it whole. As the biggest species of heron, it specializes in relatively large fish, and its average prey weight range is about 500 to 600 grams, with a length of about 30 centimeters. Because although it's the biggest heron, it's still got to get them down its skinny throat, so it can't have them too big. And apparently, because it catches bigger prey, it does quite a lot of the time have other species steal its fish because it takes so long for it to prepare it ready for swallowing so things like african fish eagles storks and pelicans will regularly steal the prey of the goliath heron but roddy shaw how many herons will you be stealing victory from here today as i ask the famous question of how many goliath herons are too many goliath herons first of all that was a great end line of uh (laughs) Who will I be stealing victory from? Big fan. <laughs> Top box. I've um, got some pictures of them here up next to me while you're reading through that. Big bird. Intimidating Big. bird. Yeah. Its whole head looks like a chef's <laughs> implement. Yeah. 20 centimetres. I saw you sort of measuring that out as I read it out. That's a big beak. That's a huge beak. Yeah. Designed for stabbing through flesh. <laughs> All right, let's... <laughs> okay, e- easy, easy, easy. Um, I didn't realise, and this might be completely naive slash stupid on my part, that herons stab the bird with the beak. The I fish. Thought with, yes, herons stab the fish with the beak. Yeah. I thought, because like kingfishers, kingfishers grab the bird, don't they? Exactly, uh, the fish. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so they stab... Stab it. Yeah. So what they do is things like egrets um, and things like that, they will grab the fish. Yeah. You know, you'll see them dive their head into the water. They'll come out with the fish between its beak. Um, but the bigger herons, grey heron that we have in the UK and things like goliath heron, if they're going for a big fish, yeah. then they open their beak slightly so that they've got two daggers to yeah. use instead of one. And then they'll stab it into the flank of the fish bring it out the beak will literally in some cases be sticking out the other side yeah and then they take it to the land shake it off uh, and then pick it up and swallow it so they're literally just using it like a javelin that is that is hardcore they're really hardcore i don't think we've ever done anything which has a face as a weapon quite like that no i i, I don't think we have and i was thinking about this the other day with woodpeckers mm. how insane is a woodpecker <laughs> imagine any item of food you got you just had to beat your head against the packaging (laughs) (laughs) until you could have at it what an insane approach to accessing anything is to smash your head against it so hard that you create a tunnel like face first into everything (laughs) and now these herons are joining my I would like I would like to formally request a segment on mm. birds that go face first into life. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> yeah. And I'm putting big herons and woodpeckers on my list. Excellent. To learn more about. I can think of a few more, but I'm gonna save them. Good. For okay. the for the segment. For the segment on birds that go head first into life. Right. 
please confirm mm-hmm. Heron's head yeah. and eyes uh-huh. their whole head if you look dead on is V-shaped with their eyes slightly dropped down to the mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. is that correct? so yeah. that they see more of a field of vision below them than above yeah so basically if you look to um, look straight down the barrel yeah it's a heron yeah yeah you would see it's eyes are sort of they're lower and they're also they're on the side because what the heron needs to be able to do is as with most birds its eyes are on the side of its head so that it can see around it but it also needs to be able to look straight down the barrel the barrel of its beak yeah so that it can hit it so that it can target it effectively the barrel of the blade (laughs) okay i how tall are they they are 1.5 meters tall okay so a, th- a third taller than a gray heron i'm still taller you're still tall <laughs> yeah i mean i would hope so if there was a heron out there that was taller than you well it's got goliath oh, oh, in the name it has got goliath you know yeah. which i always quite like that <laughs> like you could have the goliath heron and it's that size and then something else like the goliath beetle well there's there's like, like there's a goliath frog yeah that's the biggest frog in the world is there a Goliath? We got a Goliath beetle, a Goliath frog, but then you get to the whales, and they're just called blue. <laughs> <laughs> they had Goliath whale there and waiting. Yeah, like the one animal that really deserves the yeah. title. Yeah, that actually put some effort into earning it. Blue. <laughs> the thing about the Goliath heron, even though it's massive, um, because it's hunting large prey. I was surprised to learn that it does regularly have its prey stolen, uh, particularly by African fish eagles, uh, but also storks and pelicans, because there, it takes so long to prepare it to swallow it. I've just stuck Goliath heron into Google Images, and there are a number of pictures of fish eagles. Like, without even trying really? to find it, just fish <laughs> eagles coming down and harassing them. It does mean that there are pictures with the heron's wings open, and they're big. Yeah, over two metres. Yeah. I don't... Is that... I think Have we discussed that whole swan's wing can break your arms? Is that... I don't think we have, but it's complete bullshit. Right, yeah. But like a Goliath heron, even if the wing couldn't... Might give you a bit of a bruising. Give me, and then it will stab my entire face Yeah, off. I mean, the yeah. wings are the least of your worries. Yeah, yeah but it's we're... It's got a face like a knife. <laughs> we're, we're working our way down. I should say, actually, when I was in Canada, a, a bird observatory where we were catching birds to, to ring them, to tag them, uh, we caught some small herons uh, of various species. And I was told a story by one of the old bird ringing trainers that was there that said in North America there was a guy who was ringing great blue herons which are basically their version of grey herons and when you're ringing a heron even a small one keep it away from your eyes like grab hold of its beak and this guy told me a story that this guy had got hold of a great blue heron's beak its beak slipped out of his hand and it stabbed him straight through his eye and into his brain and killed him no, I've never, I've never looked up to confirm that story. I don't know if it was this hardcore way of teaching us how to hold herons, but that's the sort of thing that you'd need to worry about if you are fighting them. Which I'm going to put under a lot. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's a lot of a thing to think about. Right. Okay. And they're very attached to water. Yes, apparently more so than uh, than most herons. Rarely stray from water and really like pristine areas of wetland uh, don't like being in areas with human disturbance. So I don't know. There's something behind the Goliath heron. You know, it's big. It's the biggest heron, but it's quite particular. It, it, I feel like it, you know, it might be big, but it's not throwing its weight around. It's getting bullied by other birds that are nicking its food. It needs the right sort of habitat 
to live in. It's not particularly adaptable. I'm just getting a vibe from the Goliath Heron that it's not all that. But even if it's not all that, that head (laughs) is so terrifying. What I'm coming down to... It's like a a nerd with a katana blade. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter how nerdy they are, they've still got a katana blade. Yeah, yeah. But I also suggest that the Goliath Heron watches, you know, a lot of anime and (laughs) runs around like it's in Dragon Ball Z or whatever. (laughs) If you're a listener who likes those shows, keep listening. (laughs) I'm coming to two... Mm-hmm. avenues for this fight to go down okay which i don't think we've ever done before mm-hmm. but i'm going to do a fight on its turf uh-huh. and how i'd approach that yeah and a fight on my turf and how i'd approach that okay the fight on its turf key things to think about it gets harassed by other birds so i'm going to lean into that and the dealing with its food situation but also I'm really interested in the fact that herons have their eyes a bit lower. Mm-hmm. And what I want to do is I want to attack from above. Ooh. So the fight on its turf, I'm going to come in on a paraglider. Right. <laughs> One of those hang gliding things. Yeah. So it looks up, it's busy with its fish. It thinks it's a fish eagle coming for it, that kind of silhouette. Yeah. Hang glide down. And I reckon if I get one good shot at a Goliath heron, yeah. like it's kind of a one-to-one situation on its turf. Yeah. That's what I'm, there are other animals yeah. i've fought were on their turf i reckon i could take multiple yeah. i think the goliath heron on its turf that head is mm. such a weapon that the only way i could take a goliath heron on its turf is if i had a hang gliding start to literally swoop in below it strike some fear into it yeah. oh no it's a fish eagle coming bam neck weak snap boom yeah. done yeah but if i miss that if i fluff the landing <laughs> i'm getting face bladed to <laughs> yeah. death right Goliath Heron on its turf. Okay. Goliath Heron on my turf. Mm-hmm. We've said it's a nerd. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight it in a library. <laughs> <laughs> and my theory here is that no matter how it tries to stab me, and I can just pull a book oh, out, book defense. Yeah. Then suddenly it's got a book on its beak and it has to go off and faff about with that. Yeah. So in a library situation. Especially if you're getting like one of the later editions of Harry Potter. Yeah. That like, could boom. You might not even see the beat come out the other side. Exactly. By the time you got to the Half Blood Prince. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the time Dumbledore's saying always or whatever. <laughs> um, right. So it's turf. It's a one on one situation. And I need to have that hang gliding start. Its eyes are down. It can't see me come from above. Even if it can, it thinks it's a fish eagle. It's struck full of fear. Boom. Done. My turf library. Mm-hmm. Now we're into how many? How many books do we reckon are in your average <laughs> municipal library? I have no idea if that's a number available. Or maybe you could pick a library that has a high number of books. The anime section of a library. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to gate crash their anime club when they're all comparing katanas. <laughs> anime books are quite thin. They're quite thin. They're comic comic book styley, aren't comic they? Comic books. So I reckon it's a twenty centimeter beak. I reckon you're going to have five to ten graphic novels per beak. (laughs) And if a library had a comic section that had 300 graphic novels, which I'm going to say is... Okay, not a library, a comic book store. Okay. Comic book store, so we've got a lot to work with. Okay. Okay, There's a katana evening at a comic book store. Yeah. 
And I'm going down there, I'm raiding all the shelves, and that's my defense until finally they're all got graphic novels up and I can then use their own katanas. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like you could use their weight. The, the stores. Oh, yeah, just swing like, them around. Like you could, like, because they, they might not even be able to pick their head up off the floor yes. by the time they've got so many graphic novels stuck to their beak. Yep. Seven to 12. Okay. 7 to 12 because I was about to go in big and say oh well if there's 300 books 10 per beak then mm. 30 but I can't hold 30 books up while yeah, they're all stabbing me that's true so you've got to be able to yeah, be quick, quick enough nimble enough and all the rest and also they're going to be doing very showy moves to like get ready <laughs> you know like Kamehameha ready to strike so yeah. comic book store katana evening 7 to 12 yeah their territory hang gliding approach one flawless victory okay we've had a question in from cheryl meek who asks which animal would make the best wingman oh okay cheryl <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Cheryl. I don't know what happened there. I was about to say Cheryl Crow. It's a crow. And then, okay. Like, ugh. good job you didn't. Yeah, I know. Um, Back up there with Blamondjutan. So, what's going to make the good qualities for an animal wingman? Now, I would actually like to suggest one that is already a pretty good wingman. Yep. Dogs. Man's best friend. You go walking with a dog. And it's amazing the amount of women that will talk to you. Man's best friend. Like, <laughs> quite literally. Dogs are very good wingman, but I there are also women out there who don't like dogs. Very true. Could be allergic to dogs. Mm. I feel like whatever animal we're going to choose, though, let's say, for example, we, we end up with, like, a walrus. Yep. There could be women out there allergic to walruses. Yes, that's true. They're it, only going to know when it sidles up to them at the club <laughs> being like, do you want to go chat to my mate? And they suddenly come out in hives. <laughs> are there allergies for everything? People are allergic to like balloons and stuff, aren't they? All right. Well, like latex and like the latex okay. and things on balloons. People are allergic to loads of things. Walruses aren't made of latex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure what my equivalent yeah. was there. Okay. <laughs> Aside from looking inflated. Right. Okay. It could be a wing woman. Like, this could be an animal that works both ways. Yeah, it's a wing animal. It's a wing animal. To impress the opposite sex. Yes, yes. Is what I think. And and when I meant, you know, when I said, if you've got a dog and you're walking down, women will stop to talk to you. Yeah. That's the, the other way around. Yeah, yeah. I think if you're a woman walking down the street with a nice dog, men will be like, oh, that's a nice dog. You yeah. Know, I think it works both ways. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I think I'm going to immediately mm. defer mm -hmm. to birds. Okay. I think if you walk down the street with an eagle yes on your arm yeah that is that's you're mm. cool yeah that is cool and anyone listening thinks that's not cool stop listening just yeah. never come never return here I don't want to know you I don't want to know that you have ever listened to me yeah if you don't think the thought of my voice <laughs> being in the head of someone who doesn't think walking down the street with an eagle is cool yeah no what the the key thing right so let's think about like actual human wingmen yeah you don't want them to be too impressive oh. if you've got a wingman that's like it just becomes the showman yeah so an impressive bird that also is 
gonna man i'm coming out of flamingo flamingo (laughs) do you not think that's gonna be a bit maybe this is this is down to personal preference but like flamingo came up to me and was like oh you 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 think there might be you need to go meet my it's too flamboyant i'm just like if you're their best mate i don't want to meet him ah okay but that's maybe a personal thing i was thinking more from the side of very showy very impressive very gets the conversation going gregarious but they're like they're they're weird yeah (laughs) (laughs) flamingos are weird but that i don't think that's what you want eat their food upside down their beak goes fucking turns them pink yeah they're weird things they are weird but that's the that's the tricky thing with a wingman like you want them to be engaging to talk to but then you want the person that they introduce you to to be the better person right okay Mm. i reckon they need a solid icebreaker yes so for example have you ever seen those videos of people doing street magic yeah right and it's always it's very like instagram and very shared and very da 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 and it's like oh yeah. showy blah 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 it's like oh the card's now under your watch strap that, that kind sort of thing. of thing right yeah so and that is very i get the sense it's always when they're on those like talent shows or if you ever watch pen and tell a fool us it's like why would you get into magic oh, i was awkward i wanted to know how to talk to girls that is a, yeah. a common thread it's yeah. like i need one showpiece thing that can break the ice a party trick yes yeah. a party trick so i want the wing animal to be inherently dull mm-hmm. but with a <laughs> wicked party trick this is brilliant right yeah it's because a, once you've gone past the level of the the surface level of the trick once you've done the trick you're done you're not interested in them yeah shallow as a summer puddle <laughs> okay so it's a male lyrebird okay why might i have chosen a male lyrebird jack because it's got it's great at impressions it is so good at impressions yeah, yeah. yeah. and people with impressions are impressive but also a bit annoying yep yeah, I think that's perfect. So the lyrebird, for people who don't know, one of the most famous natural history clips, I would say, online is um, from David Attenborough's The Life of Birds, where he goes to see the lyrebird. And it can mimic pretty much any other bird song that lives in the forest around it. But on top of that, it can also mimic man-made sounds. So in this clip, which absolutely go and watch, uh, it mimics camera shutters, it mimics... Um, chainsaws is the famous one off it uh, it mimics the sound of chainsaws going chopping over. down trees and then the tree creaking and yes crashing. but in in a way we're not talking like like a parrot going you know polly wanna cracker it yeah. is like if you closed your eyes you would think someone was playing you a recording of someone with a chainsaw chopping down a tree and it then falling yeah. and crashing into other trees yeah it's astonishing and yeah you cannot describe it any other way of it sounds exactly like the thing it's supposed to sound like uh, and it does car alarms and it does ca- uh, a camera with a motor drive so yeah. it's got like a, a, yeah yeah so it's, it's got rolls. like a longer bit yeah. yeah it's astonishing yeah but the bird itself brown yeah and i reckon it's about the size of like a big pheasant yeah like it's brain it's, it's quite, i think it's quite it's sort of female pheasant size i think yeah yeah um but I guess the point is that underneath that, there's nothing between those ears. No. Yeah. There's nothing there. Yeah. It's I, yeah. a serious icebreaker. It captures your attention, but then you want to talk to someone more interesting. Yep. And as a final note, which makes it great, where's it from? 
Nature's Thunderdome. Nature's Thunderdome. <laughs> Hello, listener. It's just me popping up, as I always do, at the end of the show to tell you all the stuff that you already know. That is stuff like, please do give us a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. That is also stuff like, if you do feel so generous, then please do drop us a donation over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash geese. And most of all, that is stuff like, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday.